mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, is COVID still a thing? The board chair of the American Academy of Family Physicians discusses the latest boosters and just how much of a concern this is among doctors this winter. Also this morning, State Senator Matt Dolan, who made a stop in Findlay again last week in his campaign for U.S. Senate, talks about the challenge of doing his current job while stumping for his next one. In case you missed it, it's a program to encourage civics education and community involvement among middle school students. Registration is now open for the National Civics Bee. And the final four are set. Coach Cliff Height will share his thoughts on the college football playoff. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, December 4th, 2023. My wife and I accomplished something this past weekend. We got all of our Christmas shopping done. Believe it or not. Yeah, we, uh, I, I know, it was like a month to go almost, a full month to go, and uh, we got everything. Now, there's a little caveat with that. We, I still have a couple of things that I have to pick up for my wife. Um, I know what I'm going to get. I just have to go out and get them. And uh, we still have some, some stocking stuffers uh, to buy. But... Uh, as as far as the annual ritual of buying things for people who don't live with us, <laughs> buying things for people who do not, do not live in our house, uh, we have finished. And it is the earliest that I can ever remember uh, getting everything done. I mean, the, maybe ever. I don't think we've ever been done this early. And uh, yet we are. So I was pretty proud of uh, pretty proud of that. By the way, speaking of Christmas shopping, uh, PNC Bank is out with their 2023 Christmas Price Index. Every year, in case you're not familiar with this, every year PNC Bank calculates the prices of the 12 gifts from the classic song, 12 Days of Christmas. You know, the partridge in a pear tree, the five gold rings, the four calling birds, the seven swans of swimming, etc., 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 and this year, the Christmas price index is up by 2.7%. So, it is more expensive this year. However, 2.7% comes in slightly less than the top-line consumer price index, which is at 3.2% year over year. And it is a much smaller increase compared to last year's 10.5% increase year over year so from 2021 to 22 this is a 10 and a half percent increase this year it's up 2.7 percent so uh, another sign that inflation is easing overall the 12 gifts that compose the christmas price index increased to forty six thousand seven hundred twenty nine dollars and 86 cents that's the cost forty six thousand seven twenty nine and some change There were five gifts that saw no price increase this year. Those would be the four calling birds, the five gold rings, seven swans of swimming, eight maids of milking, and nine ladies dancing. No price increase. Although the cost of the partridge was unchanged, there was a 15% jump for the pear tree, which is a proxy for housing costs that continue to move higher despite high mortgage rates. While true loves benefit from little to no increase in the cost of goods on the list, rising wages for skilled labor represented by the performers make a bigger dent in the holiday budget this year. Although the cost of nine ladies dancing did not increase, ten lords a-leaping jumped to new heights, eleven pipers piping rose to a higher pitch, and the twelve drummers drumming drummed up a higher sum this year. In aggregate... Prices for performers increased 3.3%, which, again, much lower than last year's 14.6% surge. And a couple of other notes regarding the Christmas price index. Using technology does not add up to savings this year. Buying all 12 gifts online costs 4.8% more than it did last year. Uh, The convenience of shopping from home still impacted by elevated shipping and packaging costs that have yet to ease since the pandemic. 
And while swans typically represent the most volatile price among items in the index, their price remains flat again this year, while turtle doves are up the most. This year's largest percentage increase are for the turtle doves at an eye-popping 25%. So, there you go. And now, the other thing that they do with uh, PNC Bank with the uh, Christmas price index, they calculate the true cost of Christmas, which is buying the gifts with the verses repeated. So, the $46,729 price tag is when you buy one of each of the 12 gifts. But if you were to purchase all of the gifts with the verses repeated, like, for example, on the first day you buy partridge in a pear tree, and then the second day you buy two turtle doves and another partridge in a pear tree, and the day three you get three French hens, and then another two turtle doves and another partridge in a pear tree, and so on and so, so forth. In all, 364 gifts in the true cost of Christmas and that cost is $201,972.66, crossing the $200,000 threshold for the very first time. So, there you go. The Christmas Price Index of 2023. Big stuff. Big stuff among the first things you need to know this morning. The most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Once again... New York City, the worst in America to drive in. Every every year, this time of the year, we get the year-end lists. Here's another one. According to a report from Circuit, New Yorkers spend an average of 236 hours in rush hour traffic every year. Made the worst city to drive in in America. The city also ranked second worst for money spent on fuel because of congestion and number eight, excuse me, number eight overall for fatal automobile accidents. So overall, New York, number one, followed by Chicago and Los Angeles, rounding out the top three. Um, They also found that New York and Honolulu are the worst cities to be a delivery driver, incidentally. So that's kind of... This will not make it any easier. A new bill uh, proposed in New York City, and I guess it is expected to pass, will introduce noise cameras to detect loud vehicles. Uh, The cameras would activate if a vehicle, if the sound emanating from a vehicle reaches at least 85 decibels from 50 feet away. It would take a photo of the license plate, and they would send you a ticket. According to the New York Post, the move aims to address rising noise complaints in the city with at least five cameras planned in each borough by September of 2025. Fines for violators range from $800 for the first offense to over $2,600 for a third offense. Other bills include mandating online publication of noise inspection results and capping profits for citizen noise complaints at $10. So, uh, I don't know. What do you think about that in a noise? I want to know how the, how the noise cameras, how the microphones on the noise cameras are going to delineate between loud automobiles and any other loud noise. I mean, if they're doing road construction, you know, that would be very loud as well how and how would how does it really know what vehicle the loud noises are coming from i mean how does it discern which vehicle is actually loud if i'm driving if i happen to be behind a loud vehicle how do i know that the camera's not going to mistakenly snap my license plate and send me a fine i just i don't know how this is going to work but this i thought was uh, kind of interesting Speaking of traffic, and this is causing a big buzz online, talking about the most buzzworthy stories of the day, Uh, an article advocating for the implementation of speed-limiting technology by the National Highway Safety Administration has ignited a substantial debate online. 
The technology is seen as a potential lifesaver, especially in light of fatal crashes uh, that are on the rise, uh, apparently. Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board recommended incorporating speed-limiting technology in all U.S. vehicles, citing that 28% of fatal crashes and over a quarter million speed-related injuries occur every year. Uh, this is actually technology that they are rolling out in the European Union, uh, beginning with model year 2024 vehicles. Supporters argue that smart speed limiting could save lives on the road, and that's not all. The technology also might provide environmental benefits by reducing the emissions of vehicles because when cars go faster, engines work harder, they emit more harmful uh, pollution into the environment and so on. So an environmental benefit, they say, as well. But would you uh, be in favor of a vehicle that, limited your speed that would top out at whatever speed it might happen to be. Um, I don't know. I just don't think that would fly in this country. I just don't think that would fly. But they're doing it in the EU, and some would like to see it here. I'm kind of interesting. And a couple of other items here among the first things you need to know this morning. California, one of ten states... Uh, listed by the CDC as having some of the highest rates of influenza in the country. California, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida are all listed as having the highest rate of uh, influenza. Uh, Let's see here. Medical professionals explain that this year the vaccine is a great match for the viruses, especially influenza A, which is seen most frequently among the public. If you're traveling to any of those uh, states here during the course of the holiday season, make sure you have your flu shot because it's uh, it's going around particularly bad in California, New Mexico, Louis, uh, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida. Highest rates of influenza in the country. Important stuff to know. And speaking of uh, disease spread... We continue to learn more about ways that the pandemic impacted us maybe permanently. Nearly half of Americans have changed their cleaning habits since the pandemic. A new survey of 2,000 Americans found that during the pandemic, the average respondent cleaned their home five hours a week compared to four hours a week post-pandemic. Americans did learn some new cleaning tips and tricks due to covid like using microfiber cloths, DIY cleaning solutions, and steam cleaners for sanitizing surfaces. New habits that we have picked up since the pandemic include cleaning our shoes upon entering a home and sanitizing frequently touched surfaces. Um, 67%, according to the survey, 67% of us find cleaning to be therapeutic. (laughs) Therapeutic, just, uh, not just essential to keep us healthy, but therapeutic. Who are those people? I don't know. But have you noticed that? Is it, do you clean more often now uh, than you did before the pandemic? Has has that kind of changed your attitude permanently moving forward? The way you uh, look at cleaning your home? Kind of interesting. There you go. Some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Monday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Partly cloudy today, a high in the low to mid-40s. Cloudy tonight, uh, low in the mid-30s. Authorities in Fostoria executed a child pornography-related search warrant and arrested a 51-year-old man. Authorities say Robert E. Ware faces charges of pandering sexually-oriented matter involving a minor, all felonies of the fourth degree. However, authorities say because of prior convictions on that charge, all of Mr. Ware's charges have been enhanced to felonies of the third degree. Authorities say early indications from the evidence seized are estimating there to be around 10,000 files of images and videos of children. Ware is being held at the Seneca County Jail. Get more on our website. Ohio is the first state in the nation to report an outbreak of pediatric pneumonia cases similar to what's already sweeping China and parts of Europe.
In Warren County, north of Cincinnati, health officials have declared an outbreak of pneumonia in children. They say 145 kids have been diagnosed with the respiratory infection since August. The average age of these patients is eight years old. The declaration comes as China is in the midst of its own outbreak. Hospital wards filled to capacity with doctors seeing a rise in several known respiratory illnesses. The director of the CDC tried to ease fears, saying China is not dealing with a new virus like COVID. Onan's Meg Oliver reporting. Finley and Hancock County will be benefiting from the success of the Work Advanced Training Program. Trisha Valesque is director of Raise the Bar, Hancock County. We are really excited to partner with great manufacturers in our community on this opportunity. The partnering employers have made a commitment to the program and our graduates to continue investing in them and looking for ways to grow them within the company and the culture. She says the Work Advance program propels individuals towards promising manufacturing careers. Learn more about it in the story on our website. The City of Finley says the Income Tax Department will be closed this week for staff training. Tax return forms will still be available at the kiosk outside the City Income Tax Department office and on the City's website. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Well, you know, we knew from the beginning that COVID-19 would be something that we would eventually have to treat kind of like the flu with annual vaccines and or boosters. And yet still, there is much confusion, apprehension and frankly, misinformation surrounding these shots. So joining us this morning is Dr. Toshi Iroku Maliz, board chair of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Dr. Iroko Malise, obviously the level of concern over COVID is not what it was in 2020 or even 2021. We're in a different place now than we were then. To what extent should we still be worried about COVID-19 as we head into the holiday season and the winter of 2023-2024? So thanks for asking that. And I get that question a lot from a lot of my patients, Chris. So we've come a long way in our fight against COVID-19 and due in large part to the vaccines. But it's understandable. People are tired of hearing about COVID-19, but it has not gone away. So even as we make progress, the virus remains a severe threat to people of all ages, kids, parents, older adults those who are immunocompromised. So this respiratory season is already here. And as we move indoors, gathering in those groups for the holidays to keep out from the cold for the next few months, it's important for all of us to protect ourselves against COVID-19 with one of the updated vaccines. So every day, still thousands of people are still diagnosed with COVID-19, which not only puts you at risk, for the most severe outcomes of the disease, but it also disrupts important parts of our daily lives. So staying up to date with the COVID-19 vaccines can help keep your daily life on track and avoid missing schoolwork and, of course, the holiday activities. So when we say how worried should we be about COVID-19, maybe worried is not the the word we should use, uh, but it is a respiratory illness, as you point out. So it's still something we should be concerned about. Correct. We want to be concerned about it because we've got a whole bunch of respiratory illnesses happening during this season. Yeah. And so we want to protect ourselves. So this is one of the mechanisms to protect ourselves and to protect our loved ones. Right. Now, uh, as folks will remember, uh, during the height of the pandemic, when we got those first vaccines, uh, that was a significant milestone in moving past the pandemic and they were being provided free of charge. Is that still the case? So, yes, they are still available free of charge. Everyone in your family, no matter their insurance status or type of insurance, can receive the COVID-19 vaccine for free. So COVID-19 vaccine remains covered for all the children and adults. So under the Affordable Care Act, insurance companies are required to cover recommended vaccines, including the updated COVID-19 vaccine. So if you have Medicaid, it's covered. Okay. If you have Medicare Part B, it's covered without any cost sharing. If you're a child, if you have a child without insurance, it's covered with the Vaccines for Children program. And if you're uninsured or an underinsured adult, it's covered under the CDC's Bridge Access program from participating physicians, health centers, and pharmacies. And so to find a free vaccine near you, talk to your family physician or visit vaccines.gov or call one 800 
232-0233. Now, we mentioned uh, a lot of confusion, a lot of apprehension, uh, a lot of misinformation uh, that is out there surrounding these vaccines still. As a family physician yourself, what do you say to those who are still hesitant about these vaccines, particularly not just for themselves, but particularly for their children? So I, the, the biggest thing is that I know that family physicians, we have a longstanding relationship with our patients, right? So you have that relationship with your family doc. They know you. They've been with you through thick and thin with sickness and health. Uh, they understand your medical history, your family history. They understand the circumstances that you find yourself in your day-to-day life. So talk to them. Have that conversation. Have that private one-on-one time with them. They're your trusted source of information so they can answer your questions and concerns without judgment. I mean, you have, you have, that's what it is. You're, that's that relationship that you have. And so we've come a long way in our fight with COVID-19. Again, uh, these new vaccines are similar to the earlier ones that have been safely given to hundreds of millions of people. They've been developed, tested, used under the most intense safety monitoring in U.S. history. And even if you yourself are not one of the vulnerable populations, part of that vulnerable population, so you're not an elderly person, you're not a child, mm-hmm. you're not immunocompromised, right. receiving that free COVID-19 vaccine can protect you and those you interact with. And for children, we need to protect them. Vaccinating children now can give parents and caregivers greater confidence for kids to participate in child care, school activities, sports, play dates, and all the new holiday activities they're going to get into. Right. So it's completely normal to have questions. But when the children get sick from COVID-19, they, they can be hospitalized if, it, if it's uh, not treated well. And then they also could spread the virus to others, even if they are not hospitalized. So this is what I tell them, that it's been tested, um, that we've, we're following well-established regulated review process. Uh, the illness is worse than the vaccination. And there's no evidence that the vaccines or antibodies following the vaccination could cause a problem in the future. I I asked other healthcare professionals this, and it's something of as a, as a sidebar uh, on this, but it is related. I want to pose the question to you as well: Are you concerned that this hesitancy that we're seeing to get the COVID vaccine among a certain segment of the population is spilling over into other vaccines? People are also now hesitant to even trust the flu vaccine or the MMR vaccine, any of these others that have been around forever. So you bring up a, a, a concern that we do have at, at times. And so that's why we are very proactive in speaking out to the public and explaining to them that vaccines are safe. The idea is to build a community of immunity. And so these vaccines will help to protect you and your loved ones from illness, hospitalization, or even death. And so we are full force going out and having that conversation with our patients, non-judgmental understanding their concerns and addressing those concerns. And so that's what we're doing to make sure that everyone is protected. Again, Dr. Tochi Iroku Maliz is board chair of the American Academy of Family Physicians talking about the updated COVID-19 vaccines and boosters and time to uh, start uh, thinking about this, doing this now, if you haven't already, along with uh, the flu vaccines and everything else. Where do we get more information? You mentioned a couple of websites for uh, for info for folks. So, yes. So talk to your family doc, visit vaccines.gov or call 1-800-232-0233. Dr. Ruoko Maliz, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. State Senator Matt Dolan is with us on the line this morning. He was in Findlay last week for the Hancock County GOP's First Friday Luncheon, his continuing campaign for the U.S. Senate seat that is currently held by Sherrod Brown. And uh, Senator Dolan, thanks very much for uh, taking the time today. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Good morning. This, uh, by all accounts, is going to be a slog of a campaign, not just uh, in the uh, general election next November, uh, trying to unseat Sherrod Brown, who has proven to be a, a venerable candidate, even in an increasingly red state. But even in the uh, primary, you have uh, a couple of opponents uh, that are tough for the uh, for the nomination. Bernie Moreno spending an awful lot of money, uh, really leaning in to his close association with Donald Trump. 
Uh, Frank uh, LaRose vying for the uh, nomination as well. Obviously a known uh, candidate as, uh, as current Secretary of State. What sets you apart that you feel will pull voters to your campaign? Well, I appreciate that, Chris. Well, the first thing is I'm the only one of the three of us who has public and private sector experience. So what families and small businesses uh, and large businesses are going through, I'm well aware of it. I know where government interferes. I know where government uh, can help. So I bring that knowledge to the state Senate now, and I will bring it to the U.S. Senate in Washington. But I also have a long history of achievements of conservative principles and ideas that I've actually put into practice that have helped Ohioans. My focus is how do how do we help Ohioans every day? I've reduced taxes, I've reduced regulations, I've expanded school choice, we've saved women's sports, we got rid of ESG funding, I've helped manufacturing, we've helped law enforcement, and we took on the bureaucracy of the Department of Education when our when they wouldn't implement things that we helped kids and parents. So that's what we need to put in front of Ohioans, we go against Sherrod Brown, somebody who has a record of achievement that helps Ohio, because Sherrod Brown has a record of weakness, and it has not helped Ohio. Sherrod Brown makes your life harder. He is a very liberal senator who votes a certain way in Washington, which I'm going to lay out, and talks a different way in Ohio. And as a result, we all feel weak. We feel when we go to the grocery store, we go to the gas pump. Uh, we feel it when we watch the news and see how American strength has been weakened across the world. That's all got to change, and I'm the one that can deliver that message and actually accomplish it. In your campaign, you have leaned heavily on your uh, experience as Senate Finance Chairman, and I'm assuming, again, uh, speaking on Friday to the uh, First Friday luncheon, the uh, county GOP, uh, you uh, highlighted this as well. You talk about fiscal restraint, fiscal responsibility in Washington but with that comes some hard choices uh, to rein in federal spending. What would be on the chopping block uh, with respect to spending uh, in in a uh, Matt Dolan uh, environment, or in 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 your view? Yeah, I would br- I would bring my experience again, both in the private and public sector. And first thing we have to recognize is you need to balance the budget. And that is simple. It's what you do at home. It's what your listeners do at home. It's what most businesses do. That is, you don't spend more than your revenues bring in. So we don't need to create new revenue in Washington, meaning new taxes. We just have to be smarter with the revenues that we're getting. And we have to make sure that we look at uh, reform. And there are areas of this government that we know that if we stay on the same course, we're going to disrupt and jeopardize, you know, our kids and our grandkids. And, and that social contract that we said we would give them, that we all agreed to, won't be there. So we have to be smart. We have to be smart. Now, it doesn't mean we can't be strategic in what we do fund. And I think we need a strong military. We just have to be efficient about it. But we have to drive down the deficit because that debt is growing and growing. And you know what our fifth largest expenditure in Washington is right now? service on that debt so we have got to be serious about not spending more money than the revenue that we bring in nobody is going to disagree with that assessment and that the idea that we've got to bring the budget more in line with uh with tax revenue but again uh if you're talking about doing that without uh any increases in revenue then just about every analyst will look and say things like entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, uh, all of these things uh, that people depend on are going to have to be uh, scaled back. Can you uh, accomplish that goal without putting the squeeze on those entitlement programs that have historically been the third rail of federal politics? Yeah, this is where, Chris, I am uniquely qualified uh, certainly amongst my two competitors on the Republican side and definitely against Sherrod Brown, is those, those social programs uh, are a lot, relationship between the federal and the state government is how they're implemented. Uh, and I have knowledge in my experience of how it could be done. So you say it has to be scaled back. I say there has to be some serious reforms, which I am well aware of what, what needs to be done. And that reform will allow a, a number of things. 
One, it will maintain the, the, the services that we want to provide to the elderly, both in terms of health care and in retirement funds, and we will help those who are disabled. But we will do it in a way that is drastically different than how we're doing it now and a more efficient and less costly way. It just takes the political will to get in a room, work with others, and say, we owe responsibility to those who are receiving these benefits, and we owe responsibility to those who are coming up next. And the fix is there. It's just going to take uh, the political will to do it. And I think when people see what, what we have in mind, uh, they're going to see that we are more efficient, less cost, less expensive, driving down the deficit each year, uh, but we're still maintaining the, the commitment we've made to fulfill the social contract. There's a lot more that we could talk about there, and I look forward to that conversation at a future time. But I want to uh, move on to a couple of other points you have, especially over the course of the past uh, several weeks, uh, voiced your full-throated support for Israel. Um, does that same support extend to Ukraine? Uh, yeah, I, well, yes, I support Ukraine, that the Americans should continue to provide weaponry, ammunition, and aid in the way they're doing it. Unlike Israel, I do not support bringing American firepower to, to the region. We cannot have Putin be in Ukraine. Talk, listen to your, you know, go out and talk to your farmers who are listening today. How much has fertilizer mm-hmm. gone up? Right. Uh, 25% of the world's wheat production, the oil production. You know, Ukraine's got rich minerals. You want to give that over to Putin. This was a this was a democracy growing. The other thing that people have to understand is of the of the billions of dollars that we have spent on Ukraine, a vast majority of that has gone to 38 states in the United States of America, including Ohio, just south of where you are, Chris, to the Lima tank plant. So this these dollars are going to the defense industry in the United States to produce products to send to Ukraine. So we have an obligation to be the beacon of democracy and freedom. And when an autocrat goes into another country and commits the same atrocities that we saw play out on October 7th, when Hamas, led, you know, backed by Iran, went into Israel, mm-hmm. that same viciousness is, occurred in Ukraine. And we owe, we owe them the ability to defend themselves. On the topic of border security, this is another uh, issue that you have uh, uh, brought front and center in your campaign. And uh, you you talk about it in the context of uh, limiting or eliminating uh, the drug trade, fentanyl trafficking across the border and and so on and so forth. What about the uh, amount of drugs that are coming in from China uh, into this country? How do you uh, get tough with China uh, who are supplying uh, this? Uh, I mean, that's the origin point for most of this stuff. That, that that is correct, and that is that is the right question. First thing we have to do on the border is put the policies back in place that were actually working, that we knew who and what was coming into our country. Donald Trump had a plan. We sh- we as Republicans should have put it in the law. We didn't. You know, that has to be a singular focus to cure the border. Then you're right. Uh, we have to work with the Mexican government and let them so, say, hey, look how much aid, look how much trade we're providing. You You need to help us in stopping the, the, the uh, cartels. And then we got to look to China and understand that they are an economic and, and a military. You know, they're, they're not a friend. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, we could call them competitor, but they're, they're inching every day to enemy. And part of that is their their willingness to spend spread their poison to Mexico so that they can get in, into our country. That's why I'm calling it a weapon of mass destruction, because the product that, that Mexican cartels are bringing into our country is starting in China, and we need to recognize that it's, it, it might as well be bombs. Because if China were shipping bombs to the cartels and the cartels were bringing bombs across that killed people, we'd act. That's how we have to treat this, and that's how we have to approach it with China. 
Last question, uh, because we're running out of time, but I do want to ask you about this. Obviously, as I mentioned, this is a slog of a campaign. You've been campaigning for quite some time. It's going to be another nearly full year before uh, this uh, campaign is decided. You've got a job uh, right now in the uh, in the state Senate. Talk a little bit about the challenge of doing your current job while stumping for what you hope will be your next one. Uh, campaigning can be a full-time job as well. Uh, is your uh, is your current job suffering? How do you make sure that your current job doesn't suffer uh, with the uh, uh, process of campaigning? Yeah, well, it's a matter of priority. So my first job is to be a state senator and the finance chairman for the state of Ohio. So last spring when we were working on the budget, much to the you know, frustration of my campaign team, I took myself off the campaign trail for two months to make sure that I would focus on the budget. And I produced a document that conservative groups all over the country said is the most conservative budget uh, in the country. So this week we're we're back in session. Uh, I'm going to spend most of this week working on uh, legislation. Uh, Yesterday during the Browns game, I was on the phone all most of the game working on a piece of legislation (laughs) that we're going to roll off this week. So someone, some would say you you didn't miss much. Maximize your time. (laughs) Some would say you didn't miss much there. Again, uh, State Senator Matt Dolan. I had, it, I had it on in the background. <laughs> State Senator Matt Dolan with us uh, this morning. Senator, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. So in case you missed it, back during Thanksgiving week, we shared details on the program about the National Civics Bee. This is a program from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation to encourage education and uh, education in citizenship and American government among middle school students. And there are some great prizes up for grabs at the local, state, and national level. Enrollment in this competition is now open for students who are interested in participating. And again, we talked about it back during the week of Thanksgiving, since most students had that week off, and I would imagine very few of them got up early on their day off to listen to this program, (laughs) we thought we would revisit that conversation to kind of fill you in, let you know about this. Uh, It was a, a conversation with the... Uh, Vice President of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation, Hillary Crow. Hillary, tell us more about this competition, what it is, what the goal is, and why it's important. So the National Civic Seat is a nationwide competition that encourages young Americans to engage in civics and contribute to their communities. Middle school students in grades 6, 7, and 8 can flex their civics knowledge for a chance to win recognition and cash prizes. Our real goal is to increase civic knowledge in every community across the country. How it works is that we've partnered with local and state chambers currently across 27 states. You can go to nationalcivicsea.org. January 8th is the deadline. Okay. How it works is 6th, 7th, and 8th grade students can go to our website, nationalcivicsea.org apply, they will submit an essay, 500 words or less, about an issue in their community and how they can use civics to improve or solve it. And the top 20 scoring essays, those students are invited to compete in a local competition where they will answer civics-based quiz questions. The top finalists at each local competition then advance to the state-level competition. And the state champions are then invited to compete at the national level in the National Civics Seat hosted in Washington, D.C. You mentioned that there are prizes awarded to the winner of the National Civics Bee, right? There's actually prizes at every round of the competition. So whether you make it to a local, state, or the national level, there are cash prizes available in the national round. The finalists are competing for more than $50,000 worth of prizes. The real prize is in the recognition of the impact and the importance of civics education. Absolutely. We're seeing a real crisis when it comes to civic knowledge in our country. 
And the National Civic Sea is a fun, engaging way to reach young people as well as adults, the business community, educators, elected officials, and others in really elevating civics as a national priority and increasing those civic knowledge and skills and dispositions across the country. And I think it's so important that you are targeting this uh, emphasis on civics education at the middle school level. Kids at this age do have a, a pretty good grasp on the issues that impact their community. I'm sure that you've gotten a lot of entries uh, that have been uh, pretty impressive for the understanding that kids at this level uh, have. That's exactly right. Through the essays, it's been really incredible to see how much they're aware of what's going on in their communities and their states. And it's pretty well aligned with the, the issues that adults are concerned about as well. You mm-hmm. know, anything from mental health, homelessness, transportation, infrastructure, the quality of public education, and more. And, you know, they have some really great ideas. And the, the adults and the elected officials are starting to pay attention to what these little schoolers have to say. Yeah, and and then uh, giving them that knowledge that that when they recognize these problems that it is possible to do something about it and that's really what the uh, national civics bee is all about now you mentioned people can register uh, now and ohio is one of the states that is participating so where do students and parents and uh, shout out to educators as well who want to introduce this to their students where do they get more information how do they apply sure so whether you're a student a parent Educator, you can go to nationalcivicsea.org to learn more about the competition. As I mentioned, you'll see a map that highlights the 27 states that are currently participating. You can type in your zip code, see the competition closest to you. There's a link, apply now. You'll click on that, submit your essay, and from there, the essays will be scored. The top 20 scoring essays, those students will be invited to compete at the local level. The submission window closes on January 8th. Okay. And there's more information about that at nationalcivicsea.org. And I can also share that the local competitions will start to take place February through April, and the state competitions then take place May through August. Uh-huh. And the national round will be in November 2024. Again, part of our conversation with uh, Hillary Crow, Vice President of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation, about the National Civics Bee. I believe it's the third annual National Civics Bee for middle school students to encourage education in citizenship and American government. If you want to learn more about it, again, registration is now open through uh, the uh, first part of January, for, through early January. So, Plenty of time to sign up for this. If you want to learn more, we've got a link up at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net in case you missed it from Thanksgiving week on the program. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. I'm always left flabbergasted by uh, these types of stories uh, here in the uh, broken news when somebody wakes up and wonders, how much trouble can I get into? A a man in St. Louis, Rommel S. Taylor, uh, has been charged with 41 offenses uh, after a month-long crime spree. 41 offenses in a month. I mean, this is more than one a day. Uh, That's a full month. Uh, Mr. Taylor allegedly walked away from a carjacking when the victim started praying, but carjacking, so he still faces those charges. He robbed a bank while wearing stolen clothes, so getting a two-for-one there, which is uh, which is pretty enterprising. Uh, charges of fleeing police, uh, another stolen vehicle. He backed a stolen vehicle into a store in order to steal cigarettes, <laughs> so all kinds of charges there. And uh, he stole some uh, tools and ski masks. Um, I'm not sure if that was in the same break-in where he backed into the store to seal the cigarettes. But uh, in any event, I mean, it's 41 charges a month based on police reports. If guilty, Mr. Taylor, um, let's see, 
Mr. Taylor's method appears to be stealing a vehicle, crashing into stores, taking items, and robbing banks. Uh, the crime spree lasted between October 10th and November 9th. Uh, police were able to apprehend Mr. Taylor when a victim left a cell phone in his reportedly stolen car, and officers were able to track the phone. So, um, not the brightest bulb in the uh, in the pack, but 41 charges in a month. That's less than 30 days. That's uh, pretty impressive, actually, just for sheer numbers. Um, elsewhere in the broken news... <laughs> An Orlando man has been placed under arrest for quitting his job. Now, you wouldn't think, you know, quitting a job is not a crime unless your job is transporting prison inmates. Here's the story. (laughs) Joshua James Pinkay was driving four inmates in his van um when he allegedly veered off course, Mr. Pinkay was traveling on Interstate 40 when he decided he was going to quit his job in the middle of doing his job, and he decided he's not going to deliver the prisoners after all. So he just... <laughs> he was supposed to stop in Hickory, North Carolina to drop off the prisoners, but instead, he just kept going. <laughs> With the prisoners in his van! So he is now facing charges of felony second-degree kidnapping and felony larceny for stealing the van. The work van. (laughs) That's how you get in trouble with the law for quitting your job. (laughs) Oh, bad timing there. That's you're gonna quit your job. Do that before you take off with the prisoners, I guess. Uh, you remember the story. This is a follow-up. You remember the uh, story about the astronauts that lost their tool bag in outer space? It just floated away while they were doing some repairs. I think it was on the space station, the International Space Station. Was that it? And they were doing repairs, and <laughs> their bag of tools just floated off <laughs> into space. Um, you remember that story. Well... Now, apparently, stargazers uh, are able to see the tool bag, the the tool bag that drifted away from astronauts during a spacewalk outside the International Space Station is now slowly orbiting around Earth and will remain in orbit probably until spring, sometime between spring to midsummer of next year before it eventually falls into into Earth's atmosphere and burns up uh, in the uh, atmosphere above the planet. Uh, so between now and then, the astronomy news site EarthSky.com says that the tool bag can actually be seen in outer space with a, a good pair of binoculars. You don't even need a telescope to see this tiny tool bag in space. Uh, because of where it's at now. So if you if you want to uh, if you want to see it, you can actually. It doesn't say where to look. I mean, it's in orbit, so I guess you know it's not in a fixed spot. But uh, <laughs> you, if you look up into the sky with a pair of binoculars in the night sky and you see something odd, you can actually see the, <laughs> the bag of tools still floating out there in space. I just thought that was. Uh, Let's see here. Now, this is an unusual theft. In Memphis, a man is in jail after allegedly stealing a prefabricated shop from Bolton High School. Uh, Police found the shop. He stole a shop. They actually created a shop at the uh, metalworking uh, the uh, program, the prefab, it was a prefab shop, um, more like a shed, I guess, uh, found the shop at the home of Juan Vega in Coldwater, Mississippi. It was stolen from Memphis and transported all the way to Coldwater, Mississippi. School officials say the shop was reported missing after Thanksgiving break. The uh, shop had parts marked by the Memphis-Shelby County Schools, so it was fairly easy to identify. 
the value of the of the shop of the building ninety five thousand dollars. Apparently, Mr. Vega hired a truck driver to help transport the shop to his home. <laughs> what? Why would you do that? Why? Why do you? Why would you steal a prefabricated shop? That's just bizarre to me. I saw that. Uh, this is a, definitely an unusual theft. And how do you find somebody who didn't question, you know, a truck driver to help him move the shop? That didn't question whether he had the right to take the shop in the first place. I don't know. So many unanswered questions in that story, but it's weird. Um, in Wales, uh, in the United Kingdom, a couple in Milford Haven, which is a community in Wales, was keeping what they believed was a dummy missile in their garden as a lawn decoration. For years, they had kept this in their garden until they learned it was actually a live bomb. Sian and Jeffrey Edwards tell the BBC that the bomb, believed to date back to the late 19th century, which had been found over a hundred years ago by a, a previous relative, an ancestor, has been around for more than a hundred years. Uh, and it's there in their garden. On Wednesday, they got a visit from a cop who spotted the projectile and told them they needed to alert the UK Ministry of Defense. They responded and determined that the missile was a live ordinance. Dating back to the late 19th century. It was eventually removed, taken to a vacant area covered with five tons of sand and detonated. Jeffrey says he lived in his house since he was three. He's 77 years old. And he was sad to see the missile go. It was an old friend. He said, I'm so sorry that the poor old thing was blown to pieces. Hey, you could have been the poor old thing blown to pieces if he had discovered. Can you imagine and this thing around for more than a year in the family just sitting in the yard? And it turns out it's a live missile that's more than a century old. A little scary. And finally, in the broken news this morning... <laughs> a political story in the broken news. A candidate running for city council in Rainier, Washington, lost the election by one vote because, as it turns out, he did not vote for himself. <laughs> he lost by one vote because he didn't vote for himself. Damian Green tells local news reporters, I just didn't feel comfortable voting for myself. I thought it felt kind of narcissistic, so I didn't. <laughs> he didn't even vote for himself. Um, his opponent, Ryan Roth, almost made the same mistake himself, but then thought better of it thanks to his wife. Ryan said, it's one vote. What is it going to matter? Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But uh, he said, my wife was pushing me to go ahead and vote for myself. So he he did, and it turned out to make all the difference in the world. <laughs> he won. Um, Mr. Green, the loser, insists that he has no regrets about not voting for himself, saying, eh, I can run again. <laughs> yeah, next time, vote for yourself. <laughs> there you go. Uh, that is today's broken news report, an update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. When local news breaks, you can hear about it on social media at lightning speed. And while getting you the information fast is important, WFIN will always present the story only after verifying with actual sourced facts. This is WFIN News Director Matt Demchek. Trust the voice that's been covering the news in Finley and Hancock County for more than 80 years. You can depend on us to get the story right every time on social media, 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and at 95.5 FM. 
And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Weather's turning colder, even the possibility of snow in the forecast. And so it's about time for uh, older folks, retired folks, to pack up and head to Florida for the winter. Snowbirds, right? Or are they moving to Florida? A new survey of 2,000 senior Americans finds that 49% don't want to move when they retire. Nearly half of Americans, they don't want to move. And if they did move, 25% would miss their friends. 16% would miss their local businesses. Uh, 45% of seniors uh, want to travel more when they retire. They don't want to necessarily move. They do want to travel more. 15% don't want to retire at all. According to Ben Pajak from Clearmatch Medicare, a company that, a Medicare clearinghouse that commissioned the survey, says these results speak volumes about seniors' determination to age in place, emphasizing the importance of independence, familiarity, and community connections. So college football fans everywhere are buzzing about this year's playoff selections. The selection committee named Michigan, Washington, Texas, and Alabama as the four teams that will vie for a national championship. And that has generated strong reactions across the board. Coach Cliff Height is with us this morning to help us break it all down. Let me ask you first... Did the committee get it right in your mind with those four? <laughs> That's a Chris. That's uh, who knows exactly, <laughs> but I will tell you this: I predicted uh, the night before um, when it got done late at night mm-hmm. the exact order that they picked. Yeah, and uh, I had some people that I was texting, and they thought, "No, nah, there's no way Florida State's going to get in." I said, "I don't think so." I don't think they're going to say no to the SEC. And you know I played in the SEC. I was going to say, I know you're an SEC guy. So, But here's where I tell you that it's it's part of the argument that's out there. First of all, I think Ohio State and Georgia are two of the best four teams in the nation. Okay, but obviously because of the way things ended, Mm -hmm. they're not in. Right. But, But here's the other thing. If you're doing the quote, I test. And if you're saying that Florida State does not get in because of the quarterback situation, which mm-hmm. I understand, and I know they didn't score much on offense, and they were kind of like Iowa, where they're great defense, but no offense. Right. Okay, I get that I test. But if you're saying that's the I test, then Georgia should have been number five, and Florida State maybe seven. Let Ohio State be six. Now, yeah. again, Five or six doesn't really matter. Right. But if that was their argument to put Alabama right. in, then Georgia should have been number five. Well, and that it, you know, I I would even go go further and say if you're going to say that both Texas and Alabama are better than Florida State, you're probably right. I mean, there's I don't think anyone can make the argument that Florida State is better than either of those teams. But by that same measure, can you really make the argument that Washington is better than Georgia? <laughs> that's I mean, best, that's what I was going to say too, and 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 yet because Washington went undefeated, and they beat Oregon twice, and Oregon's good, um, you have to say, well, okay, and they do have a resume, and they do have a quarterback, and they and they do have an offense, and they do have a defense as well. Yeah. See, all four of these teams have really good defenses, which is going to be interesting, but they all four have pretty good offenses, and so. That makes it more entertaining. I think the committee was probably thinking that way. You know, they've got ex-coaches on that committee right. that you know they had to be hurting not to put Florida State in. Well, that's you know, the... being power five and thirteen and zero exactly. And I know the coach is disgusted and he's all upset. And I get it. I saw the video of them reacting mm-hmm. to the to not being added, but I still think. They got it as right as they could. Yeah. I, I, but, see, I, I would argue, being an SEC guy, 
I wouldn't have had any problem if Georgia had been in the Final Four, too. I, I think Georgia, Well, I mean, when they were number one, everybody thought they were the best team in the nation. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, and and they still may be uh, at the end of the day, uh, but they just won't get the chance to, to prove it. And I understand, like I said, it, you know, SEC uh, people are like, there's the SEC and everybody else. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and I get that. But, yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I just can't get over... You know, Florida State did everything that was asked of them. And I, know. I realize backup quarterback, but, you know, Ohio State won it all with a backup quarterback not all that yeah, long the, ago. The, the so, third quarterback, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. so I, I just think that they deserve the chance being an undefeated Power 5 conference champion. So, Well, here's the, the one thing, Chris, is that when Ohio State did it, Cardell beat Wisconsin, like 556 to nothing almost. I was at the game. <laughs> right. And, and it was unbelievable. Remember, they beat that. Didn't they score like 50 some points or, yeah, it was or something, against Wisconsin? Yeah, it was something ridiculous. And so, so the so the committee then could say, well, Ohio State obviously isn't hurt by this quarterback, mm-hmm. and they're just that good, and so they let him in, and yeah. then they won the national championship that year. Yeah, and that's a valid and that's a valid point. If <clears throat> if Florida State had had a more impressive win over Louisville, which are you know Louisville not bad, but certainly not uh, Oregon, for example, they'd have had a more impressive win than they probably get in, and then the question for the uh, committee would be. Alabama or Texas. If you could only pitch, pick one, yeah. which which would you pick? Well, I'll see with. Well, here's the <laughs> other thing. It's all Kentucky's fault. You realize that, don't you? <laughs> because Kentucky beat Louisville, the win over Louisville wasn't quite as big a deal as if Louisville had only mm. had one loss and Florida State had had no losses. And then the game would have ended the way it did. Yeah, it might have made that much difference. So you can blame Kentucky if you want, or or in your case, credit Kentucky for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if you're from Alabama, yeah. But um, you know, here's the other thing, though. Next year, I want you to call me when they have the 12 teams, and we're going to be arguing about the 13th team. I promise you, it's going to yeah. happen again. Well, and not just and not just that, but there are going to be arguments over four versus five because the top four are going to get that first round bye in oh, the no kidding. in the uh, uh, expanded uh, playoff. And and I want to ask you about that too because uh, there have been a lot of that's been the other narrative uh, in the 24 hours or so since the uh, playoff field uh, was announced was that next year this is not going to be an issue, at least not for like a Florida State, a situation like that, because your your conference champions are going to all get in. But there are there is some concern about expanding the field to 12 teams and thereby extending the season by two more games uh, for uh, for many of those teams. What are your thoughts on the expansion of the playoff? I don't buy the argument that it's too many games for these kids. Mm. I, I That's just me personally. I know people will yell at me for that, and they'll talk about academics and all that kind of stuff. Right. But with, with NIL anymore, I'm not sure academics is an argument. I, it's just a weird scene. But let me add an addendum to this argument. Look at the Big Ten. The, the Michigan-Ohio State game being the last game of the year may not be as big a deal right. as it was this year. Mm-hmm. Because they might be playing each other two times in a row. Mm-hmm. They might be number one and number two at the very end of the year and still number one and two in the Big Ten and play each other in the Big Ten championship game. Right. And then that will be the big game. So it's going to be kind of weird even for the Big Ten. When you do changes like this, and, you know, the SEC's got 400 teams in it now. And that's another thing. My son said this to me. Because the games are played in 2024, then technically there are two SEC teams <laughs> Alabama and Texas, yeah. and their two Big Ten teams, right. Washington and Michigan, yeah. in that's, the Final Four. That's a uh, that's a good point, and and you know that also is uh, something that's kind of interesting because a generation ago, back when you played, and you know in the seventies and eighties, uh, there weren't as many. Uh, I mean, there were always arguments about uh, about number one, but it was the sports writers. Uh, that and the and the coaches and the polls that determine the national championship. We didn't have a championship game, and a lot of years it was kind of obvious. And then you had more parity, and we got the the one championship game, and you just had the top two teams. And then 
you got more parity and you had to expand it to four. And now with the transfer portal and NIL coming into play, you've kind of got to go to a 12. I think this evolution of how we determine a college football champion really can be traced back to all of these other tremendous changes in the game itself. Well, I agree. And one thing you could do if you don't want that many games, you don't want 16 games, you could shorten the regular season and then start the tournament earlier, and it wouldn't hurt anybody. And if that were the reason that you don't want to go 16 games or Mm -hmm. when they had to go to 15, then if if that's your argument, then shorten the regular season. I mean, because you can do that. I mean, it it takes you'd have to do it a a few years in advance because of all the scheduling that takes place. But you know what? Another addendum to this argument. Look at Maslin in in Ohio. When you drive into Maslin, it says – 20-some state championship. Right. Or Well, they never won any on the field until this year. Right. This is yeah. the first year the first they ever won a the, state championship on the field. In the playoff format, yeah. In the playoff format. Right. And so, you know, those kind of arguments are going to come around again and again and again. Yeah. But it's also like the asterisk for Roger Maris hitting 61 home exactly. runs. I mean, because he played more games. It, yeah. It's always changing. It's always evolving. Yeah, product of its era. you just got to live with it, I guess. Yeah. Um, so real quickly, uh, because I've only got about uh, 20 seconds here, who's your, uh, who's your champion? Who, who wins it all? <laughs> well, I think Alabama's pretty doggone good. Mm-hmm. I like Michigan's team. Yeah. And I think if they play to their best and they're healthy and they have their line all back, other than the one guy that can't play, I think Michigan is legit. The only team I don't think that can win it is Washington, like yeah. you. Yeah. I don't think they can um, but we'll who see. knows? Texas that's why was they, amazing. That's why and, they play the games. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> Coach Cliff Height with us this morning, breaking down the college football playoff and all of the controversy surrounding it. Cliff, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Yeah, and when you get all the calls about how nutty I am about all the things I said, <laughs> you take them and then you can tell me about I'll it later. Take the okay? heat. I'll <laughs> take the heat. Cliff, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. See you, buddy. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage, that, of course, goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, more politics to talk about. State Representative John Cross gets set to officially launch his campaign for another term in the Ohio legislature. He will join us in the studio. So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.